pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be, poor, uh, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a, a, a wonderful passage. I, I heard a, a pastor uh, you know, uh, mention one time that they, they really they, 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 they chew on their sermon text so much uh, oftentimes that they have to uh, be careful not to say, this is the greatest passage in all the Bible. I kind of feel that one today. Um, and so get ready. I feel like I'm uh, going to preach. This one's real, really exciting. And, uh, and on, on the heels of baptism, uh, here we go. Um, this is uh, uh, the idea of this. Uh, here, uh, Paul is, is writing this letter to the Philippian church. Uh, it's a church that, that lives in uh, Rome. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're uh, you know, a colony, a, a, a small you know, town here, well, kind of a, a generally a, a larger town. Um, and the Roman citizens, but somehow now he's preached the gospel to them, the, the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. And now they have this, this, this uh, debate in their head, uh, what citizenship am I? We're dual citizens here uh, uh, in Rome, but also uh, in, in, uh, in Philippi, but then also in uh, in heaven, and, and how do we balance this? This is really a big question that, uh, that Paul is, uh, is wrestling through in his mind and, and urging the Philippian church to embrace and to understand. And he's saying, live as citizens of God's kingdom and figure out how to do that here on this earthly kingdom. And so uh, I, I want to summarize kind of where we're at in chapter two. So I think in three, maybe four sentences, I want to kind of just get the whole thought that, that Paul is painting here in, uh, in, uh, in chapter 2 of Philippians, because we have some pretty weighty texts here, uh, and then we're introduced to a few characters towards the end, and, and, and what's the whole flow here? So, in verses 1 through 11, if, you, if you're looking on in, in the Bible or Scripture, you can see that basically he says, have a unified mind. He very, very clearly says, have a unified mind. He says, have a unified mind through Christ-like humility, giving Christ as an example of the humility that achieves the unified mind. We are to be unified as Christians distinctly because we have Christ-like humility. So I've already wasted my four sentences here or more. Um, then then the, today's text right now, these verses, uh, 12 through 18 are going to say, this is accomplished in the journey of everyday life. So have this unity through humility, but, but this is accomplished in this ongoing journey of everyday life. Now, I'll just give you the fancy church word, the word here that he's talking about is sanctification, of working out your salvation, the sanctification journey of everyday life. And now, next week, Pastor Thomas will be up here, and he's going to be preaching on Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's what we get in the rest of the chapter, chapter uh, verses 19 through 30, and basically his point is, and here are a couple of real-life examples that are doing this. And so he's saying, you know, if you think it's an impossible task because they said, be like Christ, so here's an example, Jesus the Almighty, fully God, fully man, and you can have that out of being like, yeah, well, I'm not fully divine, so obviously I'm going to stumble. He said, no, 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 no. This is for real people. Timothy, Paphroditus, they're doing it too. And so I think this is wonderful. He calls us to this. So he's saying, Christ did this. And now today he's saying, now you do this. And now next week he's going to say, and here are a couple guys that are doing this. 
And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of where we're at in this flow of thought. Sometimes we get in a series and we just hunker down every week. I thought it'd be nice to come out for a little bit of a breath to understand where we're at. So we are going to lean in real heavy on, the, uh, on that middle part. Work out your own salvation with fear and troubling. The urge that we have here in these texts that Paul wants us to feel and wants us to, uh, to resonate with is this idea that we are to work out our faith with purpose and with joy. Work out our faith with purpose and with joy. He very confidently says this. He develops it wonderfully. So here is an outline uh, if, you, if you desire. The first point he's going to make is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The next point he'll make is do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then uh, the third point is do all things holding fast to the word of life. And then his fourth point, and regardless, rejoice. So four points today, so we'll go quickly. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is verses 12 and 13. He says, work out your faith in light of the work that God is doing in you. I think, uh, I think um, we're right around that six weeks from the New Year's. And so I feel like the six weeks from the New Year's is when everybody kind of realizes that they're not keeping up on the resolutions. Um, and so we need some other motivation to keep up on resolutions. One of those that happens all the time is, uh, is this idea of diet and exercise. We want to uh, eat less and exercise more. And many of you have maybe you know, charged into that, doing that, and great. Maybe you're waning, so I'll give you the motivation of uh, spring break's coming. So we need to, we need to keep up on it because we're going to go out down to the beach or whatever. Um, so good, good, good with that. But that thing, I think, is there. We, we understand this, this idea that, that with this eating less and exercising more, maybe it's eating the right things, uh, and, and we understand that we're putting the right energy in our body and, and, and expending you know, the energy. I think it's not really like how we do that. Maybe back in college, we could like really have the free time to figure out what lifts I'm going to do here or there. I feel like maybe later on in life, it's just that we get exercise, not what kind and just get out and do something. But we have this, this balance. We have this understanding that we need energy to make energy, to do energy there. Now, in, in the book of Philippians, there's talk of energy. Um, the Greek word there is it, it's what we derive the word energy from. Uh, we read it in Philippians in the words labor or work. There's this work, this energy that is in us. It's not really something that we get to go choose where this energy comes from. In this text here today, we find out that, what does it say? It says, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So I feel like sometimes in, in, in one area of good physical fitness, we get to choose that energy, and that's part of our resolution. But in the spiritual life, that energy comes from God. He is at work. His energy is in you. He's at work in your life. And so it makes all the sense that, that Paul would urge the Philippians here to say, so work it out. So get to the, get to the work of, of taking that energy that he has put in you and, and bringing it out. Not making your own kind of a thing, but look in. What is he doing? What is he at work? Uh, where is he and how is he at work in your life? And how are we going to work this out? And maybe it says, maybe not even how, but just get to it. Work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, he starts with, therefore hearkens back to the work of God in Christ that we read of in the, in the previous verses, 9 through 11. 
That's to say that God worked in Christ so after, he had, had, after Jesus has done his work, his humble work of, of condescending to the point of death, death on a cross, therefore Jesus, that God looks at him and he gets to work. And he highly exalts him. We read that in the verses before. And he bestows on him the name that is above every other name. That's verse 9. At the sa- uh, and this same working God, our text says, is also working in each one of us. He's also at work in you. This God that can take the dead, restore their life, and then put them above every other name, that work is at work in you. What sweet confidence we can have in our faith from verse, uh, verse 10. Not only does the almighty working God work with you, but he also has a purpose for you. A purpose that is in line with his good pleasure, we read. The same God who said it is good in creation, the same God who deemed things good, the same God who without him we wouldn't know what good was, that same good God is doing a work in recreation and sanctification to once again call you and I good. This is incredible. This is what's happening in this one or two sentences. Therefore, Work out your own salvation. And he says, do this a certain way. He says, don't, don't walk around thinking, I deserve this. I've done enough. Don't walk around thinking, we, we talked about this last week, that I have enough, uh, that I have enough uh, humility, that the bucket's full and now I've achieved salvation. That's not, how, that's not how humility works. Humility is a response to God's salvation. We are humble because he has saved us. Now also he turns and says, work out your salvation fear and trembling. It's not that the most fear and trembling that you have, there's a certain amount of fear and trembling, and then that achieves your salvation. He's saying, you're saved. So work it out in a non-cavalier kind of way. Be mindful of who it is that saved you. Be mindful, if you're a reader, be mindful of the last couple of verses that you just read. It moves us to an approach of reverence, to work out our salvation with reverence. And reverence is a right respect that is in line with reality as it truly is. And what is our reality? He says it here, but I want to go and expand on it in in Philippians. Uh, uh, Paul, he just kind of goes off his, uh, as he normally does when talking about Jesus. In Philippians, or Ephesians, you can put that on the screen. I'll read this. This is the God that is sitting on the throne above us. This is the God that evokes our, our fear and trembling as we work out our salvation. In Ephesians 1, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, all of that, which is a lot, that's meaty, all of that he condenses in Philippians into the phrase, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is who our Lord is. Now, connecting a little bit of what Paul is explaining, this this idea of of a Lord, 
Uh, we understand that lords have servants. Lords have slaves. Paul goes on in Ephesians to say, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. He even says this order of society where we, we respect maybe our employers, or at least slaves respect your masters. He likens that to us and Christ and our relationship. And when he says, serve them in a posture of fear and trembling with sincerity, real fear and trembling. And then he just kind of puts this, this side note and says, yeah, because we understand that you're doing that with Christ anyway. We approach him with fear and trembling, a reverence, a respect that he is Lord, that he is commanding everything. That third time in, in Philippians, we see the phrase, the day of Christ is coming. The judge is there. It is Jesus. He is holy. He is vengeful. He is righteous. He is just. And we work out our faith with fear and trembling. Okay, that's a ton of theology. What does that mean? What does that mean, like, just in common language? What does that mean for today? Uh, it means, we'll hit this a little bit more as we continue on, but it means that, that our journey in faith, you, know, you heard the ladies, you know, give testimony to this, that their journey of faith may, may have been, you know, this, this moment of where God was working in and on them, and then they maybe had this, this realization, this conversion. I think my re referenced it as, it wasn't really that moment, but it was more of kind of a season. Um, maybe it was a season for you. Maybe it was one special prayer one night for you. Uh, maybe it was just this time where you realized your sin and Christ, and this is all real, and he is Savior, he is Lord, and, and you prayed something to God in the effect of, I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin, and I understand that I can't have righteousness or salvation without the sacrificial death of Christ. And whatever that is, he says, so, so then we work out the salvation. See, God isn't just working. He's not just creator. He's creator and sustainer. He's not just, he's not just a, a, a redeemer, but he's a redeemer and, uh, and, and, and a renewer of, of souls. He's a, a restorer. He has this ongoing process. We never see Jesus, uh, God explained as someone who is just there working in and on us up until we convert. And then he's like, all right, and we'll put them over in the, we're taken care of. And now we're going to go after all those other people who don't believe. He's working in and through you always. And so when we work out our salvation, it's not work it out to the point of figuring out, oh yeah, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. It's work it out there and then continue because God keeps dumping in on you his revelation, his people, his word, his truth, his spirit. He keeps working through and puts you in new situations. And so don't just stop and say, I'm a Christian. Now I'll just attend church to remind myself I'm a Christian. No, there's something you do here with the people of God. There's something you do in your life. You have to continue working it out. He is putting energy in you. It is yours now to make that energy rightly come out. And I can't give you the application of what every single one of your lives is going to be in the next 15, 20 minutes, let alone the rest of the week or your rest of your lives. That is the task of the Christian. A sanctified mind, a mind seeking holiness and Christ-likeness will ask the question, what is the example of Christ here? What is the example of godly people here? How do I apply in the, uh, the Bible in this situation? So I'm kind of going way off my notes, and, uh, and uh, I'm really excited here. Uh, so uh, we'll move on to the next one. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So I guess that's one of the things we do. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is verses 14, uh, 14 through 16. I'll just highlight this. Uh, three things here that I'll highlight. I'll probably end up highlighting 17, but we'll try for three. Um, do all things. I love this. I, I just crave, you know, these nice, neat, crisp application points at the end of a sermon because it's really fun when a pastor can say, now, do this. Here's your measurable. And then I look at Paul and he says, do all things. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> He's just wildly ambiguous. It's so hard to, 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 to say. So go out and do the things you do, all of the things you do, and do it without grumbling or disputing. So what is grumbling and disputing? Well, uh, let's not just assume and skip over. Let's see what the, how the text reveals itself. Because the text is, so, is breathed by the same mind, breathed by the Spirit, it's all interwoven and the words do matter so we can lean into the words some more. Grumbling is defined as a, uh, as a low-voiced, behind-the-scenes talk. So if you want to do it with me, we can grumble. You know, it's kind of that kind of a thing. You walk around the corner and, you know, you get an email. Uh, you say that, you know, and uh, it's those kind of things. Grumbling, except here's, here's, here's the big point. It's against God. I said, wait a second. I don't think I was grumbling against God. Uh, oh, well, let's see what Exodus does. The word grumbling comes up a lot in Exodus 16. The same word is used in Exodus 16. So Exodus 16 and 7 and 8, Moses, uh, all the Israelites, they're on their own form of a journey. They're going through the wilderness, a very helpful uh, uh, illustration for us as we are on our own journey is much like them. And they really don't like this leg of the journey. They kind of don't like any of the legs of the journey, kind of like grumbling us. Uh, and so, this is wonderful words that, that, that they're grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And Moses clarifies and he says, what are we? That, you're grum that you grumble against us. The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So don't bring your complaints to me, he says, because I'm not the Lord. You grumble against the Lord. Okay, maybe that's a one-time exception. It's not. Think about it. When we grumble in our lives, uh, okay, I wrote some of these down. Get back to notes. Be helpful. Even if you don't direct it at the Lord, you direct it at his providential care of his creation. Maybe you ask the question, why did you make this person? Why did you make me like this? Why did you put me in this situation? Or why did you give me uh, such an unpleasant life? I mean, really, when we grumble, if we pause and go a couple layers deeper, we're actually grumbling about either the creation God has made, the path he has set us on, or his silence in not answering our prayers at the moment. And when we grumble, we grumble like the Israelites. And now all those Israelites that you thought were terrible in the wilderness, that were so dumb and never turned, they are now us. Don't do that. <laughs> do everything without grumbling. Now, while grumbling is against God, disputing now turns to one another. Uh, the Bible helps us here. This language is used. Paul even uses this language again. He says in 1 Timothy 2, in, in the ordering the right worship in the church, I desire then that in every place the, me, uh, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I've always thought this is such a weird verse. Uh, but we do that. It needs to be said, because I don't, I don't feel like this morning when we were lifting our hands, I don't know if we really lifted our hands, we were very cold and unemotional, but that's a different topic for another day, people. Um, 
they, uh, <laughs> we could do that more, I guess. Apparently, it's in the Bible. Um, the, uh, and she says, don't do it with anger. I'm like, I wasn't angry worshiping. Oh, but I don't know. Maybe we put on that mask sometimes. Maybe the car ride here was a little bit angry, but then we just kind of hide it. That, that, that's there. Or quarreling, disputing against one another. Maybe we pray sometimes that God's will might not be done in this situation, but we pray that God's will might be done just so that person can change and be what I want them to be. Help them in their sin, God. Oh, that's not exactly. That's praying with disputing. God, I really want healing in this. I really want a job. I really want this or that. That's nice, and we can honestly pray for those. But if we're going to do that not against one another, we really need to come to the table and say, God, change me to understand this in whatever the situation may be. You've put me on this leg of the journey to teach me. Teach me. Even if I am Paul, chained in prison, please help me to rejoice regardless. So, I think that's a good, good, hard kick in the pants for us. Now, doing everything without grumbling or complaining is good. But here's my problem. That's simply practical wisdom that anyone else would give you. Like, that's not distinctly Christian. I just don't, don't grumble, don't complain. I mean, that's what anything, if you're reading self-help, you know, uh, books out there, they're all going to tell you that same thing. Why is this distinctly Christian? Because the first word of verse 15, that. Because God has a purpose in this. Because God has a well-intended purpose in your not grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world that's so long in so many parts of that. How does this help us? Why do we grumble and not grumble and dispute? It says, in order that you may be blameless, innocent, without blemished children of God. And here's how this comes into Christ. It's not so that you be squeaky clean and prove yourself this way. Remember, we're talking about sanctification, this ongoing process of holiness, of Christ-likeness, this journey in the right direction. He says, because if you believed in Christ Jesus, the one I just talked about, if you believe in him, then you are no longer children of wrath, but children of God. And as children of God, you have now been recreated in the image of God that I first created you in. And that original creation was blameless, innocent, and without blemish. So he says, so don't mess it up. Just acknowledge that you're children of God and now act like children of God. There's some people that didn't act like the children of God. It was this generation. See, they were made in the image of God, but then they are, what are the words here? Crooked and twisted. They were in the image of God, and then Genesis 3 happens. There's a fall, and they're crooked. It bends. It breaks. They're crooked. They need to be returned to the straightness that is there, the good, well well-intended design of God's good pleasure. Or they were made in that, but then they didn't simply just stay crooked. Then they took it and they twisted it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing because that's what the world does because they've rejected the image of God and they've turned to something else. They've turned into themselves and they've bent and twisted what this is. Don't do that. 
Cling to what you are and live that way. And one of those ways that we show that is by not grumbling or disputing. It says, and, and when, you, when you are that way, it's not by default, you're just going to be better than them. That's not what the, uh, the, the shine like stars thing is. He says, you give a glimpse of that brilliance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the renewed image of God that is in you and the well-intended good pleasures that are there. You embody that when you resist the temptation to go ways that you are inclined to with your heart and with your mind and with your mouth and your grumbling and disputing. When you resist those, you are the brilliance of God. You are the brilliance of of the sun shining as lights in the cosmos. Mm, that's so good. But then what do we do? He says, don't do these, but here's something else that we do. Do all things. So there's the real big ambiguous application point for you. Now do all things, don't grumble and dispute, but do hold fast to the words of life. He said, don't hold on to your words against. Hold on to the words of life holding fast to the word of life so that I may be proud in the day of Christ. See, that day of Christ, that day of Christ is that end. He has that, that, that long view saying that day is coming. We didn't just have God work in us up until Jesus was here and we believed in him and he died and, he, and all that stuff happens. It continues. So live as children as though it continues. Work out your faith, faith in the continuation of that until the day of Christ. That's the end point. That's when it all comes together. But why does he say, it seems a little selfish. Paul says, work this out so that I may be proud in the day. Like, do this so, you know, make your dad proud, you know. Like, is that what he's saying? No, uh, uh, quoting, uh, this is actually from the uh, ESV study Bible. That's a fantastic study Bible. It's just one of the notes right there, super simple. If you have one, you can check and read word for word, what I'm going to read right now. I just took it right out of there. Super helpful for understanding the Bible. Uh, they, they explained it this way. It says, Paul's own labor would be in vain if they failed to hold fast until the day of Christ. Holding fast means both believing God's word and following it. Paul is not content to be, be, this, be this phenomenal evangelist, like he wants to, because if that's how God wants him to work, then, and that's the glory that he has, then great. What he really wants here, and he's saying, is that you take the long view, that you enter the journey of discipleship, that you become a disciple, that you follow him. His, his labors, he thinks that his labors would have been in vain if the people just became Christians and he had these huge evangelism rallies everywhere and then everyone just went back to doing what they did. Like he kind of says that here. He doesn't kind of, he really says that here. But then he binds this together because I think this part is so odd and we don't hear it so much. Verses 17 and 18. He says, regardless, rejoice. You know what, I'm going to pause because I want to I go back. I feel, I feel, I feel something here. Is, is, is this holding fast to the word of life. It is very difficult. I, I think you are going to cling to words. You are going to cling to what people say, what someone says. And you are going to cling to uh, what someone uh, does or, or how someone thinks. That is just kind of by default. I think one, uh, one scholar, he says, uh, he says, we're all worshipers. Just depends what we're worshiping. So it's the same idea of that. We are going to follow the words of someone. If we don't resist grumbling or disputing, we will follow 
our own words. And how do we understand our journey when we think about it? Our own words are how we got into the mess anyway, right? Like that's our own thinking, our own choosing. That's how we got into the mess. How do we get out of the mess? The revealed word of life. I mean, Jesus is that word. He also gives us a wonderful abundance of words here that are so deep and true and lasting. And he says, unless you hold to that, hold fast to that, I'm a terrible wakeboarder. Terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, And sometimes uh, I fall over a lot of times, basically every single time I go. I mean, that's kind of the nature of it, right? Uh, It's never victorious, hands up in the air, sink back in. It's always face plant. I feel like sometimes, you know, wakeboard, you know, may come off or not come off. And depending on how hard I hold, I mean, with a wakeboard, it's really, really hard. Uh, Usually I lose on this one. You hold fast. Sometimes you just get pulled along. And that water is so painful. And that water is so awful. And your pride is so damaged. And you just hang on. Sometimes it could feel that way. I'm not saying, like, go try and wakeboard that way. It's not recommended at all. Um, Life may feel like that. You may feel like you are just getting drugged around. And everyone's on the reservoir watching you saying, what a fool. You may feel that way. And, like, that's part of the journey. Like, unfortunately, that's... If we take Genesis 3, right, that's, that's there. That's part of the journey. Hold fast. What do you hold fast to? You can hold fast to your own words. And in those moments, I don't have a whole line of good words that I'm saying. But when we hold fast to the word of life, it can really work through some stuff. The Psalms are fantastic. They give us the words of our emotions. They teach us how to pray rightly to God in angry ways, in expectant ways, in pleading ways, in humble ways. We try and incorporate a lot of that into Sunday mornings just to give you some of that, just to give you some of that fodder for when those times come. A lot of times what we're doing here at church is really preparing ourselves to be ready for a potential, for a horrible wakeboarding experience this week. We know that. How many of us have left here and by the end of the night we're thinking, oh, this, I'm just going to mail it in. This week's already, already toast. If we don't hold on to the words of life, I don't know if we have much hope. And he says, I want you to hold on to these and not just say, Jesus, forgive me. Thank you. I'll go figure it out. But truly understand that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is for you and fights for you and will guard you and defend you. He is your refuge. You can turn to him, even if you don't have eloquent prayers. God help, this sucks. That's actually a really good prayer and basically the short summary of 95 of the Psalms. <laughs> but regardless, here's the last point. Regardless, rejoice. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what's happening here? Paul pulling imagery from the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial practices. Okay, so what that is, is that they'd have an altar and they'd put animals on. Uh, you can read Leviticus. It's amazing. I have diagrams if you want. Um, so for certain sins, there are certain uh, uh, sacrifices and these, the blood of these sacrifices covers the sin. That's kind of the general idea. So they put this, this thing on the altar and, it, and, it, and it's done. And then sometimes they have a drink offering that goes with this, depending on certain sins. There's this huge like religious thing. It's, it's 
insane uh, what they all did. Uh, so the drink offering, you basically like splash it on there. Like you literally could just like pour it out like for your homies, like you do that too. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, but, but, but what happened, he's saying, he's pulling this imagery. He says, we remember this kind of a thing. Uh, and this is kind of what's happening. He says, uh, what are the words here? Upon your, I am a drink offering. So I'm, I'm, the, I'm the pouring out thing here. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So he says, what is the sacrificial offering? He says, it's your faith. It's as though you laid your faith down here. Wow, that's weird. Because he understands substitutionary atonement. He understands that your faith being laid here is a faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, your faith is in the Lamb of God who went to the ultimate altar, the cross. Your faith is credit for your salvation because it is faith in the Lamb of God the perfect sacrifice, the spotless, sinless sacrifice for you. So your faith is what's there. You can count it as salvation when you have faith in Jesus Christ because you have put it there. And even if I am just a little extra to throw on, even if I am the parsley on your meal, it's just there, but it completes it. Even if I'm that, it's not my desire. I want you to actually like have faith and then work it out. But even if you aren't grateful for it and you just say, God, forgive me, thank you, and you do nothing, Paul says, this is so strange, you don't hear a lot of pastors say this, Paul says, I rejoice because you at least have saving faith. Even if you suck at working it out and you're so terrible at living as a Christian, you at least have faith. And for that I rejoice. Man, that is incredible. But I don't want that to be the emphasis. Obviously, it's not the emphasis for him. The emphasis is work it out. Work out your faith. Take it seriously. It's as though Paul is saying, even if you do a really bad job of working out your faith, I can rejoice that you at least have faith. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a quote here from uh, author David Paulison. He writes in an article. I'll post this on the, uh, the, the North Campus uh, face, Facebook group page uh, here later today. Uh, one of the things he says is, sanctification is a journey, not a destination. The real key is the direction you're heading, not the distance you've traveled or the place you've reached. It's the direction. It's all about that direction. So I want to invite you, kind of by way of application here, I want to invite you into maybe a, a, a strange word picture. Look at these, look, going through this, look at the actions, uh, the action words that Paul has for us in this passage. He says, work out your salvation. Uh, literally, he's saying, make the work of God within you come out of you all the time. Work out your salvation. Do all things. Holding fast. Be glad. Rejoice. The journey towards Christ-likeness or holiness or sanctification requires energy. These are big tasks that we have to put energy into. And it is work. Sanctification works kind of like, here's the word picture, kind of like a moving sidewalk, uh, which actually I googled, and uh, here's a fun trivia nugget. They actually, in some places, are called a travelator, which I feel like is very British, a travelator. Like, it's just, it's so great, a travelator. I'm going to use that a lot because I never get to say that word. Um, when we acknowledge and confess our own sin to God and believe that Jesus' death 
and resurrection are for the forgiveness of our own sin and the newness of our own life, then and only then are we Christians. That's what makes us Christians. Then and only then do we step effectively onto the travelator. So there are three kinds of people, I think, maybe four kinds of people. So one of these kinds of people, these Christians, so the people that are on the moving sidewalk, some of us Christians are, it's moving, are walking with the travelator, embracing God's work and putting in their own work to understand, experience, and proclaim God's good pleasure. It's this ongoing work, the work of the sidewalk, the work of us, and they're moving along in their sanctification. Some of us Christians are content to acknowledge that at one time we stepped onto the conveyor belt in faith, and we're content to step to the right, stand there, and put forward no work. Now be careful here in the analogy. Sure, you might learn a thing or two along the way. I mean, this is, Paul's talking about these kind of people. You might learn a thing or two along the way. You might make better decisions in your journey, but here's where Paul's lament is, and it is, is my lament, and should be ours as well, but there's a lack of depth and quality. There's a lack of substance and conviction to what they do. So sure, you can do that. I guess you can do that. As a pastor, I'm not going to try and be like, no, 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 no. You can't be lazy in your faith. You can. There's forgiveness. I don't want to, like, make it a big thing. But why? Why not give it all? If you believe he really is who he is, why not? And then there are some of us, the third person. So some are walking with, some are standing there. Then there's the third kind. Some of us Christians are putting in good effort to go the wrong way. Through lust, adultery, porn, drinking, unmitigated anger, outbursts of violence, hurtful thoughts, uh, thoughtless words against others, unexplainable, entitled spending, stoking the fires of jealousy, proud hearts, they are committed more to God's displeasures. So, and then there's, you know, maybe a fourth kind. They're not even on it. They don't even know. (laughs) about what it is. Maybe they've not been invited or they've said, no, no, not for me. If I get on, I'm going to try and get off. I just don't want it. I don't know why it's beneficial to go that way on the moving sidewalk. So, the message for us here within what Paul's saying and the word picture is get moving. Don't just be content to stand there. Get moving. Where are you? I feel like that would be a great question to ask now. Where are you in that picture? Are you moving along? Are you embracing it? Are you standing there just content at that one time? I kind of come here just for some social thing. We're actively going the other way. And I have to admit, like within a week, I probably have a little bit of all of these things. The general direction. Are you more often than not in one of these? That's probably the better way to, to ask this. I'm really wearing out the analogy at this point. But get started. Get started moving. And, and honestly, get started, is, is, is there's something else in this. If you are struggling with sin, if you are, in essence, moving away with any of those things that I had said there in that list, it was a big, hefty list, it was really uncomfortable to read. If you are doing any of those, if that's, if that's, that's pointing that you're going the other way, here's the great thing about this moving, moving sidewalk. If you even stop or resist temptation, that's actually a step in the right direction. Stopping is actually work. I feel like we burden people so much in legalism and say, you have to be 
be, be, be baptized and serving communion and playing this and preaching and all of these things. There is a level of outward sanctification that needs to happen, and you have to be all of these things, and it's an impossible task. Like Paul can do it. Peter can do it. Billy Graham can do it. And then we, we kind of run short here. It's not about where you're at. It's that you are taking steps toward. So even if your step is one less night of drunkenness, Praise God. We can be glad and rejoice because you're moving. But we are going to need to work it out with others. That is a big, big part. You can't do this alone. This faith, reading Philippians, there's no way we can be at this point in Philippians and not think this is uh, inescapably connected to community. This is the togetherness. This is the koinonia, the, the, the strong, thick fellowship that's there. This is the partnership in the gospel that's there. We need this because it provides an accountability to read, to think, to pray, to live rightly, to not riv- live wrongly, to do this daily, regularly. We need to be having voices and people in our lives. And we need to ask for advice. I've just heard I just a, a wonderful thing. Just several of you have been asking for, you know, something along the lines of spiritual mentors. Just in the, in the last few weeks, we've just hearing a lot of this. Like, we, we need help. We need to ask. Some people are further down, you know, the moving sidewalk. Some people are further down in their maturity. Some people are moving faster. Ask them, how do you do this? It seems like you make good godly decisions and I'm not quite figuring out how that works. It seems like I read Philippians and I have absolutely no idea how Pastor Josh got there. I don't know, I had a lot of help. Um, the, ask questions on those kind of things. Why do we sing these strange words? Why, what is this baptism thing? Ask some of those things. How do I make best decisions in really difficult situations? Ask people. God didn't just give us a thought. He put it in our bodies and we live it out. We have lives, we have situations that are very similar, and we can ask each other. This is that messy, beautiful, mysterious thing he calls the partnership of the gospel he calls the church. And maybe just help you, help you out there. It's kind of awkward this day and age, but if you see someone moving the wrong way, and they're running the wrong way uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the moving sidewalk here of, of sanctification, it's okay to like ask them to pause and ask some of the questions. Why are you going that way? What's going on? Because in helping a brother not to stumble, even for a moment, you are helping them consider another way. You are helping them make a step. Even pausing their wrong action is helping them resist the devil. And I think the biggest thing of all this, this this weight that I continue to feel as a pastor here, is that it takes work, but as a body, it takes work as well. Because all of these things that Paul is laying on us are rich, are deep, are true, These shatter the kingdoms of the devil. And he doesn't like that, and it's going to take work. He will be against us. So, the point of all this, work out your faith with purpose and with joy for the glory of Christ and the benefit of all. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your powerful word. It is so potent. It is so wonderful. It is so worthy. Please help us. Uh, You've laid uh, a a huge task here. Please help us to embrace that task, to to be uh, inspired by your word and by the example of Christ. But also, we pray that you would give us courage and hope and confidence because we know that it is not us who have to hear this sermon, read this text, 
and well up some kind of energy within. You are actively at work in us. Please help us to not well up work, but to understand the work that is in us and to work it out with each other in our daily lives on this glorious journey you've put us on. It's not always enjoyable. Oftentimes, it's not very enjoyable. We pray that we can rejoice in the midst of what it is that you are, that are you doing in us and through us. In your name, amen.